Hey, I'm Claire from Pittsburgh. I'm Jeff from Kennewick, Washington. I'm Nick from Salt Lake City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jordan Morris in for Jesse Thorne this week. A lot of you have probably sat around with friends and watched a bad movie for fun. But have you watched The Room? Is it Scott Gardner that says something yeah. really true? He's like, most bad films are just like... Technically bad. Technically bad. But The Room is philosophically bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with actor Greg Sestero and journalist Tom Bissell. Greg co-starred in a 2003 movie called The Room. He'll be the first to tell you that it's a bad movie. There's stilted dialogue, plot points go nowhere, and certain scenes are just bizarre non-sequiturs. It was all put together by a first-time director named Tommy Wiseau. And the movie is the embodiment of his inability to communicate. It's like a really secretive person saying, here I am, world. And yet they don't, they're not even looking into the right camera. <laughs> you know? The Room became a cult hit, and there were a lot of questions about how and why it was made. So Greg Sestero worked with Tom Bissell to write a book about it. Then later, we'll revisit Jesse's conversation with fashion blogging superstar Tavi Gevinson. She'll talk about how weird it is to be a teenager in the world of fashion and why her website Rookie is alternative, but not in the way you'd expect. It's subversive because... You know, there isn't really another publication that speaks to teenagers this honestly. But it's not, like, subversive because we have girls in Doc Martens or whatever. Plus, comedian Kyle Kinane talks about why it's important to be polite, even to cats. Carol Kellogg shares a couple of books you should be reading right now. And I talk about why you should watch a movie that really shows the value of just hanging out. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Ten years ago, an indie movie premiered at a couple of theaters in Los Angeles. The movie showed for two weeks and grossed only $1,800 before they pulled it. It was so awful, so cringe-inducing. The plot didn't make sense, the dialogue was bonkers, and the star of the movie was a pale guy with long black hair and an unidentifiable Eastern European-ish accent. It was billed as a drama, but the effect was comedy. The movie was called The Room, and it became a cult hit. My guests today are the co-authors of a book that looks behind the scenes of that movie. The book is called The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room, the greatest bad movie ever made. Greg Sestero played one of the leads in the room and served as the right-hand man to the writer, director, and star, Tommy Wiseau. He wrote the book with journalist Tom Bissell. I'll start by playing a clip from the room featuring both Greg and Tommy Wiseau in their roles as Mark and Johnny, who are best friends. Johnny walks onto the scene seemingly muttering to himself. I did not hit her. It's not true. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hey, Johnny. What's up? I have a problem with Lisa. She said that I hit her. What? Well, did you? No, it's not true. Don't even ask. What's new with you? Well, I'm just sitting up here thinking, you know. I got a question for you. Yeah. You think girls like to cheat like guys do? What makes you say that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just... I'm just thinking... I don't have to worry about that because Lisa is loyal to me. Yeah, man, you never know. (laughs) Greg, Tom, welcome to Bullseye. (laughs) What an introduction. (laughs) Um, So, Greg, uh, I'm an OG Room fan from way back. 
I saw the midnight screening at the uh, Lemley Sunset 5. But when I try and describe it to people, I have a really, really tough time. How do you describe the room to people? Um, Really, it's unlike any movie experience you'll ever have. Um, It's something that's so incomprehensible that as you watch it, you immediately want to find out what it is, why it was made, and who is that uh, vampirish-looking man (laughs) on the screen. Yeah, And who is that handsome devil alongside him? (laughs) So for people who haven't seen the film, can you guys synthesize the plot of the movie? And I should tell the audience listening at home, I made the air quotation marks around the word plot. I'll start. A kind-hearted, saintly banker named Johnny lives in San Francisco with his devoted future wife. And into their lives comes um, a character named Mark. And who, for reasons that are really explained very well, he's Johnny's best friend, but he decides to embark on this torrid affair with Johnny's future wife, Lisa. At which point, Greg? All uh, hell breaks loose. (laughs) (laughs) It's really a pretty simple story. Yeah. It's just a love triangle gone wrong. And it seems pretty hard to, like, make that into the surreal masterpiece of incompetence that the room is, but... Yeah, when you say that, I mean, I'm thinking like one of those dramatic 80s Woody Allen movies. Yes. Like, that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, it sounds that, you know, that simple, you know. So for people who have never seen Tommy Wiseau on screen, um, I'd love to get a description of him. And I think a good place to start is in the book, you describe him as um, a thug that Steven Seagal would have beat up in a Steven Seagal movie. Um, can we elaborate from there? I think it was Jean-Claude Van Damme. He's oh, excuse the, me, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah, he does kind of look like one of those guys. that was oozy guys that he gets kicked off the catwalk like yeah. in the first scene. Who runs out and Jean-Claude Van Damme is like, chop! And then the guy's just gone. It's like a, He looks like a stuntman. <laughs> he looks like a Hollywood like, stuntman. Yeah, like a Gene, in Gene, you know, wearing a Gene Simmons costume. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I read, I, I, I hope he's not listening to this, but I read a description of him the other day um, online that described him as a, a G.I. Joe figure that had been microwaved for four seconds, <laughs> which I thought was just so devastatingly accurate. Um, he he has an animal magnetism on screen. Like they say Hamlet is the ultimate character because he controls the action even when he's not present in scenes. And Tommy's kind of like that too. Like his absence is as mesmerizing as his presence on screen in the room. He's so conscious of being seen and wanting to be seen that he can never vanish into the character like an actor must. So his performance is always so overt. He's never not aware that he's not performing. And that breaks all kind of rules of movie acting that we can think of. Because not only is he a bad actor, he's a very self-conscious actor. It's just it's him existing on screen yes. as this person. And, yeah. and I think that's what makes, think, makes it so fun for people to watch. You know, bad movies get released all the time. There's exactly. probably a few coming out this weekend. but There's more bad movies than there are good movies. Absolutely. But yeah, but there is something about a fiasco like The Room that that does take it to another level. A bad movie is not fun to watch. This is very fun to watch. Well, Greg made this wonderful... 30-minute documentary that he showed that he's been showing on his book tour for this book uh, where he went back and interviewed a bunch of the room cast and a bunch of the original room fans and is it Scott Gardner that says something yeah. really true he's like most bad films are just like technically bad technically bad but the room 
is philosophically bad. <laughs> and, I think, and I think that's such a wonderful way of putting it. And then at the end of the day, it's so quotable. It's You just want to watch scenes over and over to try to understand them because you see he's trying so hard to get a message across. And it just it fails so miser- miserably, but in a way that is so entertaining. And so human. Yeah. Because he's also the most guarded, secretive person in the world. So these, these two parts of him don't, do, don't cohere. And the movie is the embodiment of his inability to communicate. It's like a really secretive person saying, here I am, world. And yet they don't, they're not even looking into the right camera. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like everything is colliding together in the, in the strangest of ways. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Greg Sestero and the journalist Tom Bissell. Greg co-starred in a cult movie called The Room. Greg and Tom's book about the movie is called The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room, The Greatest Bad Movie Ever Made. Tom, as I mentioned, I I saw The Room in its kind of um, initial phases of cult dumb. Uh, I saw it at the Sunset Five uh, here in L.A., and uh, Tommy introduced it and and said one of the funniest things I've ever heard any performer say, comedian or otherwise. He did a little Q&A. Someone asked, will the room ever go to Broadway? Can you ever make a Broadway show out of this? And he says, and I'm going to try and do an impression here. He said, uh, well, I cannot tell. I can't see the future. I'm not Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) Just... (laughs) Clearly a weird idea of what Santa can and can't do. And then we watched the movie, and it was like a combination of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and the Rocky Horror Picture Show that people yelled out comments. They did little skits in between the movie. It was madness, and it was it was wonderful. Um, Tom, what was your first room experience like? I saw it in a theater in Portland, Oregon. After uh, watching all of the videos on YouTube in just one afternoon, I just discovered it. This is in 2009, I think, 2008. What about it was so compelling to you? It, it seemed to obey no known storytelling logic or law that I was familiar with. It, it it flew directly in the face of everything filmmakers had taught themselves about how filmic grammar worked. It it just it was a completely uncynical, totally sincere catastrophe made by someone who obviously had no idea what he was doing, but believed in what he was doing so much. That it just is mesmerizing. And that's the thing, like a complete, total confidence combined with an also a complete lack of talent. That talent almost is irrelevant. Where there's a kind of anti-talent that forms, that becomes like totally visionary. And that was the thing I responded to. Like, I think I said to Greg before that the room shows that there is a, a third territory, but beyond good and bad, where things just exist, where you can't categorize them as good and bad. After a star dies and becomes a white dwarf, (laughs) that's the space in which the room exists. Yes. Hi. Can I help you? Yeah, can I have a dozen red roses, please? Oh, hi, Johnny. I didn't know it was you. Here you go. That's me. How much is it? It'll be $18. Here you go. Keep the change. Hi, doggy. You're my favorite customer. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So uh, if you guys could, can you describe the production of The Room? Uh, What was Tommy doing that was different from other indie filmmakers? 
Um, well, first off, he was doing something that had never been done before. He was shooting the film entirely on HD and 35 millimeters side by side at the same time, <laughs> which had never been done before or since for good reason. <laughs> um, and he started out thinking the movie was going to take like two to three weeks, but really he, with every scene, he got more ambitious. So you started out in an alley scene and then he decided to shoot a lot of stuff on a rooftop that he built in the parking lot. So really with this production, you didn't know what was going to happen day to day. It was just people, actors were being thrown into different scenes that they weren't supposed to. So it was almost like what Tommy wanted to shoot that day is what we shot. You were kind of put into the weird role of organizer slash den mother slash peacekeeper, right? Yeah, I you know I knew Tommy really well and I understood what he was trying to do, and then I I had connected with the crew and the cast. So it was kind of trying to keep those two afloat and communicating, so one didn't tumble onto each other. And I uh, it was definitely a a fun challenge. Now I guess we should say that that the whole time this is going on, this this production is just just devouring money. But also kind of a weird and explicable thing about Tommy slash The Room is that he's bankrolling it with no problem. Yeah, he, um, you know, he wanted to to make movies and Hollywood didn't really give him the opportunity. So he was going to go out and make this movie the way he wanted it to with no restrictions. And there was nobody really to stop him. You know, even even the crew was saying, hey, you're kind of spending a lot of money here. And he's just <laughs> like, you know, we, we're, we're worrying about movie. We're not worrying about money. So we have first class production. <laughs> there's a yeah, there's a strange uh, there's a couple of strange scenes that are on a rooftop, something that's pretty easy to find in L.A., but they are clearly shot on green screen. Yeah, I felt um, watching Tommy that the green screen was to make this film kind of more dynamic so you could say it has special effects it's got you know technology added in there i mean when when people brought up to him just go up on a rooftop and shoot these scenes he's just he didn't go for it he's like no we're going to do it my way when when he got hard to work with and there are a lot of times in the book where you describe times when he's very hard to work with what what kept you around uh was it just the payday? No, I just felt like I had got that far into it, and I knew how much it meant to him making to finishing this project. And I felt like I, there's no way I could jump ship. And I knew that Tommy didn't have the capability to communicate what he was trying to do. So I felt like he didn't mean to be that difficult. He just didn't know any better. So I just I tried my best to help him finish his movie. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Greg Sestero and the journalist Tom Bissell. Greg appeared in a 2003 movie called The Room, and it's frequently hailed as one of the best bad movies ever. The Room was written by, directed by, and starred a man named Tommy Wiseau. Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell's book about The Room is called The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside The Room, The Greatest Bad Movie Ever Made. Something that's compelling about Tommy is his backstory, kind of specifically how little of it we know, including where he's getting all the money for this kind of runaway production. You kind of take a stab at telling his backstory in the book. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you did it and why you decided on that technique. Everything I know about Tommy um, is in the book. I I know he's from someplace other than, you know, the United States (laughs) and uh, um, from some part of Eastern Europe. And, uh, as to how he put his money together, 
I mean, just going over the cold facts of it, it's, uh, I think the line in the book is that this is a man whose skin Occam's razor cannot cut, you know? <laughs> the simplest answer is always the truest answer, but there there isn't a simplest answer with him. There is, it's completely inexplicable to me how you can go from selling toy yo-yos and toy birds and Fisherman's Wharf to owning several buildings in the most expensive city in North America in eight years, five years? <laughs> how does that happen? Yeah. I don't know. Greg, you don't know. I've I've kind of given up. Um, I've just kind of accepted it that it's this it just happened mystery and it's happened and um, it, it, it yo-yos back and forth. I go, you know, well, Tommy's a really hard worker. That's all he does. Maybe there was at some point where he was really efficient and great at what he did, and and in that, in you know, at the time in that city, you know, there was opportunities. And then I go, there's there's simply no way that this happened that way. So you just. That's part, I think, the fun of it is just kind of wondering how it all happened. But think about this. We think, how could Tommy Wiseau have made all this money? You would have been hard-pressed 10 years ago when The Room debuted and made $1,800 in two weeks. If you took someone aside and said, this is going to be a global phenomenon mm-hmm. a decade from now, everyone would have said, that's ridiculous. But it happened. And the, I think, the yeah. guy, The guy has some weird bizarre magic that just things happen to him. Yeah, without spoiling too much, I mean, the, the story that you kind of piece together for him is a really genuinely touching and lovely immigrant story about a, a guy who grew up really, really tough and dreamed of nothing but coming to America and got here and excelled. And showed immense resilience, yeah. immense bravery, immense fearlessness that he um, fought back against some pretty, as you say, confining and star-crossed circumstances and remade his life and made himself into something extraordinary. And I, that, I don't mean that in a, in a faint praise at all. I mean, he did something really incredible and something that a lesser person would not have been able to do. Yeah, it really, like, makes watching The Room a lot more fun. I mean, I guess, you know, if you were just seeing it cold, you might assume that, like, oh, this was made with cocaine money or something <laughs> like that. But... Kind of knowing that this is, in a weird way, a dream realized yeah. makes it a lot more lovely and fun to watch. That's wonderful to hear because uh, one of the things I said to Greg while we were working on this book is that I don't want anyone to ever watch The Room after reading our book again and laugh in a mean way at The Room again. I want them to laugh in a joyful way because it's obviously not a good movie, but, <laughs> it, but it's, it's, it's a bad movie in a wonderful way. You must be kidding, underwear. I got the picture. Yeah. I don't know what to do. Yeah. That's life. Nah. Yeah. Hey, Johnny. Hey, oh, Mike. Hey, Daddy. Hey, you guys doing? want to play some football? I got to go see Michelle in a little bit to make out with her. Oh, so psh. I'm sorry. Come on. Come on. Football. Oh, all right, let's what? do it for you. Think, all, right. all right, whatever. All right, all right, let's go for it. I'm going out. Right. Um, when did yeah. you first start getting wind that this wasn't just something that was going to disappear? When did you get a sense of the midnight movieing? That was going on. It had developed a small kind of LA cult fan base through like 2004, 2005, uh, and then I got a you know a phone call from Entertainment Weekly that uh, they had just you know a writer there had just seen it and he wanted to do a piece on it and he told me that it had been studied in universities. <laughs> There's like a lot of celebrity fans, and I just thought, okay, this guy's totally punking me. <laughs> and uh, he released an article, and I thought it was going to be like a little blurb in Entertainment Weekly, and it was a six-page article. And ever since then, it just completely blew up. Now you're a you're a working actor. You wore before the room, and you continue to be a working actor. Do you ever 
go into an audition room and get recognized as the guy from the room? God, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's happened a few times. You're pretty good in it. <laughs> yeah, what I, I try to survive the movie as much as possible. My favorite, your my favorite line reading of the whole movie is "People are very strange these days." There's just something that's so beautiful about that phrase and the look you get in your face when you say it. There's just something majestic about that moment. I really love it. It's like that's the one moment where Tommy's madness infects you in, in the movie. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, I never thought of it that way. That's People are very strange these days. I think if you haven't seen this movie, something that might surprise you is that there is a lot of football playing in it. There's a lot of football. <laughs> Can you guys talk about the football playing that takes place? It all takes place three feet apart, so there's no uh, real throws in it. Tommy clearly doesn't understand anything about football. <laughs> but it's soccer. See, he and Greg and Tommy played soccer when their friendship was first starting, mm-hmm. and that all becomes football as represented. Yeah, the yeah. I, um, shortly thereafter, I, I introduced him to football, and he fell in love with it. Um, and so he felt like football is what kind of bros do and, and integrated it into as many scenes as possible, including a, where we dress up in tuxedos. Instead of having a drink, we go outside and start throwing the football around. Playing catch with the football is clearly to him like such an American thing to do. Yeah, yeah he, he, he loves playing catch. But he doesn't understand any of the kind of social context that playing catch. No, it's just, right. it's just about, yeah, it's just about the football. One of the lines from the room that's been endlessly quoted and memed and interneted is Tommy's growl at the heavens, Lisa, you're tearing me apart. You actually kind of tell the story of this line in the book. Um, Can you kind of... Correction, it is you're tearing me apart, Lisa. Oh, who's the OG room (laughs) fan now? Um, Yellow. (laughs) Can you talk about what, what filming that was like? Yeah, it was it was incredible. Um, Tommy loved um, he loves you know Marlon Brando, James Dean, kind of the iconic American actors. Um, and a big you know part of this movie was to have that moment for himself where he he delivers with bravado this classic line. And so he was like, well, I'll just use James Dean's line. You know, why why go any further? Uh, but his version of it was, "You're taking me apart." Lisa instead of you're tearing me apart and so he was going at it just trying so hard to get this line it just was not working uh, a few people on set were were laughing they're like you're taking me apart like he's a robot or something it kind of didn't really make any sense and so I knew what he was trying to say and I ended up going up to him and correcting it um, but it was just line after line him trying to get this out and he finally you know, after many, many takes, he finally nailed it. And it ended up being, you know, the best, you know, the most iconic line in the movie, like he he intended. You're scaring me. You are lying. I never hit you. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. Why are you so hysterical? Do you understand life? Do you? I think we are about out of time, but um, I, I think that all the room fans out there would want me to ask... Uh, do either of you know if Tommy is planning a follow-up? <clears throat> He's been talking, you know, for quite a while about making, you know, more films. But I think what would be most interesting is if someone made a film, adapted this book into a film. Because then I feel like Tommy's ultimate vision of the movie he was trying to make yeah. would then see the light of day. And I think that would be kind of the sequel, prequel, 
the whole thing <laughs> thrown into one. Hopefully that happens. Can you tell the title of Tommy's like proposed next next movie? Um, the next movie that he want, would want to make would be called The Foreclosure mm-hmm. about the housing market. Wow, well, that's that's certainly in the zeitgeist. <laughs> I just like you go from the room to the foreclosure. The sequel to that would be like the yard, sure, living with friends. <laughs> very yeah, very crashing on titles. a friend's couch. <laughs> the couch. <laughs> well, uh, Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell are the co-authors of the new book, The Disaster Artist: My Life Inside the Room, the greatest bad movie ever made. Greg, Tom, thanks for being on Bullseye. Thank you. Thank you. After a break, I'll talk with Carolyn Kellogg about a couple of books you ought to be reading right now. Plus, Jesse will talk to Tavi Gevinson. She's editor-in-chief of the online magazine Rookie. All that and more coming up on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, gang. You can subscribe to the Bullseye podcast at MaximumFun.org. Hey, it's me, Jesse. MaxFunCon is MaximumFun.org's annual gathering of friends in the mountains above Los Angeles. Join us this spring for comedy, classes, talks, and parties with your new best pals. Tickets for the 2014 edition go on sale Friday, November 29th. And to be honest, we cannot add any more bed capacity, so expect it to sell out quick. Head to MaxFunCon.com the day after Thanksgiving to grab yours. Bullseye is supported in part by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. Warby Parker offers prescription eyeglasses starting at $95 with free shipping, free returns, and a free home try-on program. Plus, for every pair of glasses sold, another pair is distributed to someone in need. Online at warbyparker.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. Every week, we like to check in with one of our culture critics to talk about some stuff that's worth your time. This week, we're talking to the L.A. Times blogger and book critic, Carolyn Kellogg. Carolyn, welcome to Bullseye. Hi, Jordan. Uh, Your first pick is the upcoming book, The Encyclopedia of Early Earth by Isabel Greenberg. And this is an illustrated book of imagined fables. Yes, it is not, in fact, an encyclopedia. Uh, It's a graphic novel. Well, because encyclopedias are all the rage these days. I can see why they would want to capitalize off encyclopedia mania. Uh, Yeah, she's going to do a Wikipedia version. (laughs) (laughs) It's a story within a story within a story. And like you said, there's a ton of fables. But at its heart, it's a love story that's sort of star-crossed lovers, but very sweet. And it's sort of set in the North Pole and the South Pole and uh, a man and a woman who are trying to get together. And the magnetic poles are forcing them apart. And, And is this based in any kind of history? No, but it plays with a lot of myths and stories that you know. Like it, it has a little bit of the Odyssey in it. It's got a little bit of Moby Dick in it. There's, there's all these stories about uh, travel that sort of make up these big arcs in our cultural knowledge that are all sort of embedded in here. But in some ways, that doesn't really go to what the book is like because it's a graphic novel. So one of the things that's great about it is that it's uh, really charming pictures that have some characters who sort of push beyond cliche and are kind of interesting and make you feel like they're real people. 
And I guess when I think of graphic novels, there's 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 two audiences that are tough to please sometimes. It's people who never read comics and people who read just superhero comics. Uh, how do you think those groups will react to this? I think that people who read just superhero comics will find that the drama in this maybe isn't high enough for them. <laughs> but people who read a lot of literature or novels or short stories, I think, will like this a lot. And maybe it will make them think about graphic novels as something that they would like. And your second recommendation is a new book called The Gorgeous Nothings, Emily Dickinson's Envelope Poems. And I think this what surprised me about this book uh, when you handed it to me the first time was that it is – you are literally looking at the envelopes that Emily Dickinson wrote on. It's not transcriptions of the poem she wrote. You're looking at the envelope. Yeah. You know, I, I really thought that since this is a radio show, I should bring some visually oriented <laughs> books. <laughs> um, the thing that's really remarkable about this is that we know Emily Dickinson as a woman who wrote these small poems with very spare language. Um, but she was writing on the scraps of paper that she found around her house. That's, And when you look at these, I mean, it's literally like a photograph of a scrap of paper that's like three by three inches that's been torn and ripped and scribbled upon in order for her to write these tiny little poems. That's why she wrote so small. I mean, if she had fax paper, it would have gone on forever. (laughs) Um, And luckily, there are translations on the face because sometimes it's hard to read her handwriting. What drew you to this book? What do you really love about it? I like the, you know, the photographic facsimile of the the envelopes that are actual size, it makes it feel like you're putting your hand on the work that she did, uh, you know, almost 150 years ago. Carolyn Kellogg recommends The Gorgeous Nothings, Emily Dickinson's Envelope Poems, and The Encyclopedia of Early Earth by Isabel Greenberg. The book is out December 3rd. You can find Carolyn's writing at the L.A. Times and on their blog, Jacket Copy. Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you. It's Bullseye, and I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. Each year, Jesse hosts a thing called Max FunCon up in the mountains above Los Angeles. I've been every single year as a performer and a teacher, and I can say it's a blast and a half. It's part comedy festival and part creativity conference. This past year, Kyle Kinane joined us for our traditional stand-up comedy show in the woods. He talked about why you should always be polite, even around cats. Uh, I don't know. I'm having weird days, man. I said, God bless you to a cat. (laughs) It's not like I was in a room with people and animals and I heard a sneeze and my gentlemanly instinct kicked in. Like, I got this. God bless you. You know, I was alone in a room with a cat, which was already a day. That was a day that I was having. I was just... Wasn't my room, wasn't my cat, just sitting on a futon. I'm on one end, cat's over there. We're both just looking in different directions, looking for answers, you know. (laughs) And the cat sneezed, and then it was quiet, and that made me uncomfortable. Because I was raised right, you know. So in my head, I'm like, oh, I'm going to say something. I was like, you know, it's a cat. I was like, yeah, but we're all God's creatures or whatever. Go for it. Like, God bless you. And then the cat looked at me. Because that's what they do. Cats look at the origin of sounds. But they also have very judgmental faces. So the cat looked at me. You could just tell its expression was like, you know I don't have a belief system instilled. 
that would require you to say something. I don't, I don't adhere to any deities. I think you say these niceties to make you think you're a good person. So you do these surface-level polite things like pleases and thank yous and God bless you to mask a deeper-rooted fear that you're a crappy person. That's why you say that. Furthermore, I, listen, I was worshipped as a god in Egypt. If I need to bless myself, I'll bless myself. I can do that. It actually comes in very handy. I sneeze all the time. I'm covered in cat hair. And then my response was like, well, go f*** yourself, cat. But if you were just there like a fly on the wall, you just saw me going, God bless you. Go f*** yourself, cat. And that's why I don't interact with people real well, all right? That's why socially this isn't getting easier. You know, this should make it easier. You know, go out every night. You talk to people, and it's friendly, and it's nice. But more and more, I'm just in bright lights, shoved into corners of the room, just defending my opinions. Like, come on, you jerks. Like, every night's an away game, it feels like, you know. (laughs) Nobody's liking you here, buddy. Let's go. Hi. (laughs) Just, just straight. Like, and so, like, I welcome weird opportunities to socialize. So that's why if I'm standoffish, I apologize. Everybody's just genuinely light, nice, and that's like, ah, no, that can't be right. <laughs> but as I, like, I was on an elevator, and I, like, this guy gets on the elevator. I'm the only one on the elevator. This guy gets on, regular-looking fella. As soon as the door closes, uh, he just looks at me with confidence, and he says, you smell nice. <laughs> and I said, thank you, because I don't get that compliment ever. <laughs> not, people comment on the odor. It's never directed at me. It's usually just some sort of observation. Like, who would leave taquitos in a golf shoe anyway? (laughs) It's not Old Spice. It's Old Spice is. It's some sort of expired seasoning that I admit. Like some paprika that got kicked under the stove six months ago or something. It could be that. But I, I just said, I said, thank you. But then my man, he stepped on the gas with the situation. Because then he, then he goes with a little more, a little more lo- alluring eye contact. He goes, you just get out of the shower. <laughs> All right, that's a little bit forward to not have an agenda behind your statement. You just get out of the shower. That's, that means, okay, something's about to happen here. And I just, I overreacted because it's somebody that wanted to talk to me. And I'm just like, what do you smell? Is it lavender? Do you smell lavender? If it's lavender, I got a new face wash that I'm using that's lavender. It's very overpowering. People think I took a whole shower, but really I just washed my face. If it's lavender, tell me if it's lavender. And he just walked out of the elevator. (laughs) And that's when I realized I had just out-creeped the creeper is what I did. I became too much work for a pervert. That's what happened. My own desperation turned into a form of self-defense. This guy walked on like, I got this one. I'll charm him with some comments first. Then I start yammering off. He's like, this guy's just going to chew through the gag and ruin the whole van ride. I wasn't looking for a project. I was just going to make an afternoon of it. He's leaving, looking for his next victim. I'm still trying to talk to him through the closing doors. I'm like, where are you going, new friend? Don't you want to watch Silver Linings Playbook together? I already saw it once, but I watched it again with you. I'm going to go. Thank you very much, you guys. Kyle Kinane. 
His most recent stand-up special is Whiskey Icarus. He performs stand-up all around the country, and you can find his tour dates at kylekinane.com. The next Max FunCon is May 30th through June 2nd. You can find more information and reserve your spot starting the day after Thanksgiving. Space fills up very fast. Go to maxfuncon.com for information. Hello, I'm Judge John Hodgman. And I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. Can you force your girlfriend to listen to heavy metal music? Is a machine gun a robot? Is it okay to take coupons out of the garbage if you're Canadian? What should you do if your parrot attacks your husband? Can you prove that Crank 2 is a good movie? Only one man can decide, Judge John Hodgman. If you have a case for the judge's court, visit MaximumFun.org slash JJHo. If you just want to listen in, find us on the web or free in iTunes. It's Bullseye, and I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. We're about to listen to Jesse's conversation with Tavi Gevinson. When she was in middle school, Tavi Gevinson was already one of the world's top fashion bloggers. She flew to Fashion Week and got free clothes in the whole nine yards. She's 17 now and runs a website for teen girls called Rookie. It's an online magazine that's about feminism and other important issues with capital I's, but it's also about glitter and stickers and what to wear to a party. The first two years of Rookie are now available in book form as Yearbook 1 and 2. Tavi spoke to Jesse last year around the time Rookie Yearbook 1 was released. Let's hear that conversation now. Tavi, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to ask you first about the Style Rookie, which was mm-hmm. your, which was and to some extent still is, although it's rarely updated these yeah. days, your style blog. Um, I fell into style blogging myself a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and um, every time I would get into the fashion industry part of it, you know, like I would talk to industry people, or mm-hmm. st- I would so consistently get creeped out. Yeah. <laughs> and that's me as, and, and sort of wonder, it, it would prompt me to get involved in these complicated kind of who am I and what am I doing here? Yes, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, so I can't imagine having to go through that crap as a, like a 14 hmm. or 15 year old. Did you ever have to like correct your course when you were doing that? I mean, yeah. I The thing is, that what I really liked about fashion that I often felt like wasn't understood by then the news outlets that would be like, 12-year-old fashion blogger. Like, what I actually liked about it was just the creative part of it. And the people I admired from that industry were like the obscure antisocial Antwerp designers who never give interviews or whatever. I mean, it. I don't know. I, maybe my parents were a little worried at first. It probably sounds a little horrific, like a 12-year-old, like, pouring over and worshipping these fashion magazines. But it wasn't like I was pouring over, like, horrible women's magazines. I was obsessed with, like, the British ones that had interviews with artists. But I guess it was a little hard to, like, sift through some of the BS. But I, I feel like that's a good <laughs> skill to have. And the earlier, the better, maybe. Um, I, well, let's talk, let's talk about what d- your parents thought of all this. Mm-hmm. Um, did they know about it from the beginning? No, I didn't tell my parents. And then once I was asked to be interviewed for the New York Times Sunday uh, Style magazine, I had to ask them and they were like, they didn't believe like my and my sister didn't believe me. And we were in like, the living room and I just kind of like 
said it casually and then they were like, that's a really <laughs> stupid lie. Because if that was a lie, that'd be a really stupid – like, I have a fashion blog. That's not an interesting lie. So they literally did – that can't be true. They literally did not know that you had a fashion blog no, by the time that the No, I just used the, times... the computer. I mean, I – I have really great parents, but they did not really, like, monitor our computer use at all. And I guess I'm lucky that I ended up, like, you know, with the fashion magazines that were just interviews with interesting artists instead of, like, on, I don't know. I wasn't, like, fighting in the comment section of YouTube. So I turned out okay. What were and are the things about fashion that did appeal to you? Well... I mean, there were a few things, like on a really simple level, just the way clothes feel and just the way colors look together. Um, Like in the beginning, I think my style was more just like a strange combination of proportions and colors and prints and textures. And that was just fun to like make a kind of collage in that way. And then I, you know, became really obsessed with like Twin Peaks and Virgin Suicides and the idea of creating a kind of narrative and being some sort of character was really appealing to me. Like I grew up doing community theater and then at the same time that I was interested in fashion, I became obsessed with like Bob Dylan and that movie, I'm Not There and all his different personas. And I became obsessed with Cindy Sherman. And I think the idea of like being a different person every day was really appealing to me. What was your experience of the difference between – what is your experience of the difference between that community that you build of like-minded people um, on the internet and then just school, which is, you know, for many of us, the last time that we will ever be in a big group of people mm-hmm. who are drawn together solely by circumstance, outside of, I guess, jury duty? <laughs> I mean, what I'm about to say is not supposed to be, like, self-pitying or a sob story because I I had a, a generally good middle school experience. Like, this was not hard for me. But I did, you know, get bullied for, like, how I dressed. But also, like, I was opinionated. And, um, I mean, I just kind of liked that, like, I would go to school and get bullied for how I was dressed or whatever. But then, like, so I would get photographed wearing that outfit at Fashion Week. Like, I just really relished in the irony of that. I thought it was great. Like, at the time in my life that I guess I was the most photographed, I was, like, in my most awkward phase, but also in this context that's supposed to be, like, the most beautiful people in the world. And I just think that's great. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris. You're listening to Jesse Thorne's conversation with Tavi Gevinson. She first became known as a fashion wunderkind when she started a style blog when she was only 11. Now she edits an online magazine for teenage girls called Rookie. The site's first two years of content are available in book form as the Rookie Yearbooks. I read uh, an offhanded remark in something that I think was from Anahi Delani, who's mm-hmm. one of the editors at, at Rookie and works with you and for you, um, where she said, she said, I'm just looking forward to getting yeah. to the point where people don't treat Tavi like a talking cat. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like do you feel like people have have treated you like a talking cat? Um yeah, I mean well because I mean I get it it's you know a young person is doing a thing and I think when someone is um actually that's not that amazing a young person doing a thing but I guess to some people it is. We've all and... read the kids did it column in National Geographic <laughs> for Kids. We know young people are doing things. Yes. 
I mean, I guess... I don't know. I mean, I am looking forward to not... To people being less like, wowza, how did you do it? But I... I don't know. That That's not, like, a big problem in my life. It comes with the territory. Um, and, you know, with Rookie, it requires people to actually take a better look at what I'm actually doing. And so whenever I have done press stuff, they're, uh, they've been more respectful. And I'm older now, and it's, you know, it, it's fine. I'm okay. One of the things that I was... Um, that I found interesting about reading the book is that I have gotten so used to uh, a dichotomy between, I mean, essentially between, I don't know exactly what the lady version of this is, but essentially between jocks and geeks. That that is this, this dominant cultural mode is jocks versus geeks and equivalent. And um, I really liked the breadth of Rookie and the mm. the fact that it wasn't just about what do us outsiders think. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's what I'd like to do with it. Because I think, you know, for years there have been a there's been a lot of great art made about that. And there has been a space for people who feel that way. So many wonderful zines and blogs and movies and things, and I just don't feel the need to add on to that. Um, I just want to make something that is subversive because, you know, there isn't really another publication that speaks to teenagers this honestly. But that doesn't mean it's not, like, subversive because we have girls in Doc Martens or whatever. After a break, hear the rest of Jesse's interview with Tavi Gevinson. I'm Jordan Morris, and you're listening to Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. My name is Dave. My name is Graham. And we're both the hosts of Stop Podcasting Yourself, which is a podcast from Canada. In fact, we've won the best podcast in Canada two years in a row at the Canadian Comedy Awards. <laughs> Sounds made up. It does sound made up. Even as I was saying it, I'm like, did, there, did that really happen? <laughs> Here's the thing. Stop Podcasting Yourself is a very positive show yeah. about two people who hate absolutely everything. <laughs> but we love you and you uh, listening through all this promo. Ah, the people have already fast-forwarded yeah. through this part of the promo. Anyway, thanks. We're Stop Podcasting Yourself, and you can find us at MaximumFun.org. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us online at Twitter.com slash Bullseye. It's Bullseye, and I'm Jordan Morris. You're listening to Jesse Thorne's conversation with Tavi Gevinson. She's the editor-in-chief of the online magazine Rookie. The site features writing from Tavi, teenage girls, grown women who were once teenage girls, and also occasionally famous people like Lena Dunham and Amy Poehler. Tavi curated the site's first two years of essays and photos for print in the Rookie yearbooks. You went on this uh, tour, this nationwide tour, where you did all these sort of um, readings and, and I guess, like, installations. Yeah. And um, part of this tour was people bringing you stuff. <laughs> um, and I wonder if you could describe for me some of the people that brought you stuff and, and what they brought you. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So um, for 
this summer, myself and a few members of the rookie staff took this road trip uh, from New York to L.A., and in L.A. we created this installation that was like a giant mutant dollhouse teenage bedroom. So we asked girls to bring us like some kind of souvenir from their own rooms or adolescence or whatever, um, even though the majority of them are still experiencing that. And we got, oh my gosh, let's see, um, someone gave me a VHS of the movie The Parent Trap, the Lindsay Lohan version. Um, someone gave me a, a an empty journal, like, as a gift for me, but I love it because in the front she wrote a Taylor Swift quote that says, if, like, you're lucky to be different, don't change. Um, I... Um, 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 I'm a real, I'm really big about like bonding with people over Taylor Swift. Um, uh, Me too. <laughs> I got, oh, one girl gave us these bracelets that she made as a teenager that said like, one just says poems. And I like that because it's just so like angsty. Like I'm going to make a bracelet and it'll just say poems. That is really cool. Yeah. You can't, people in the audience can't see me, but I am super excited about this poems bracelet. It's a really great bracelet. She also had one that said, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Philistine, Philistine, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's so weird that you made this, but cool. Um, Oh my God! What else? I mean, they I love poems because it's just—it's yeah. just an expression of the idea of expression. Yeah, right. It's like you know what—we're gonna get out there. We're gonna share some <laughs> stuff. I need to graffiti that somewhere. <laughs> just poems. It's nice. I—it's so teenagery in the best way i'm trying i mean we got a lot of great you know homemade jewelry stuff like that um oh what else i mean so much good stuff and then i went home so we were in la for a month and i had shipped like a box of stuff from my own house to here for the installation but then we also had all the stuff girls gave us and then also a lot of vintage shopping from the trip um and i ended up shipping five boxes home to oak park like big boxes and i only recently decided to like even try and go there and so i have been going through them now and you know before i was like by the end of the installation and also technically the end of rookie's first year i was like so drained of this aesthetic of like collage diy virgin suicides stuff and i swore i would put it all in a time capsule but i just started going through all of it again and like i can't help it and my room is becoming a mess again because i don't want to put anything away i want to ask you about uh thrift store shopping yeah this is an important topic in the book um uh there's a, a an excellent guide to thrift store shopping that you you didn't write um but i know that you're you uh started your fashion blog particularly on your based on your enthusiasm for secondhand shopping yes um tell me what it is that you like about thrift store shopping because i have a hard time explaining its appeal to people who don't get it sometimes well it's like like i could draw you like a whole spider web diagram of it like they're like on one hand it's great because let's do some mind mapping tavi okay <laughs> at the center i'm drawing a circle and writing thrift store shopping here. i've got some lines coming out let's write we need like a dry erase board i mean okay so one thing it's cheap whatever that's great um another thing the thrill of the hunt thirdly 
like I said, like at the same time that I started my blog and got interested in fashion and like Cindy Sherman and the idea of having all these different personas, um, it was really thrilling to me that like you could buy something and someone had it before you. And to my friends, I was like the grossest thing. Like they're like, you don't know who's worn that. And I'm like, exactly. There's something nice about an object uh, that comes to you secondhand because specifically because you don't know what its story is. And to me, that in part means that its story could be anything, that its story is completely full of possibility. Mm -hmm. Something you buy new, you know what it is. You know where it came from, even if you don't know literally where it came from. It's starting with you, roughly. Yeah. Maybe some sadness in a third world country, and then you. Right. Um, But... Something that something that comes to you secondhand could it's it's magical simply because it could have come from anyone or anything. Yeah, I mean that's what I like about it. Just and I get really sad when I think about like you know all the estate sales and things that just go to waste, or when my mom is like. When she sees me wearing, like, clothes from the 60s or 70s and she's like, I had a bunch of clothes like that when I was younger. But, like, I had to give them all away or throw them out or whatever. And I'm like, where are they? Like, it's such a tragedy to me. But I, um, I don't know. I got to interview Daniel Klaus for Rookie and it's in the book, too. And he was saying before, if you just went off the highway to a random little town, there would be, like, a little junk shop and everything and now there's an Applebee's and um that absolutely kills me but I just try and remember that the things then that are really special will be especially special well uh Tavi Gibbonson I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye it was great to talk with you great to talk with you too thank you so much for having me Tavi Gevinson in conversation with Jesse Thorne. She's the editor-in-chief of the online magazine Rookie. The site's first two years of content are available in book form as the Rookie Yearbooks. We like to close the show each week with a recommendation from our host. This week, that's me. It's The Outshot. If you've ever seen the 2003 movie The Station Agent starring Peter Dinklage, you might have noticed that it has a lot of really powerful themes. It's a movie about the power of acceptance. It's a movie about learning to move on. But I think its greatest virtue is that it's a movie about the awesome, transformative power of hanging out. In fact, I might go as far as to say that the station agent has some of the best hanging out ever committed to film. In the movie, Peter Dinklage plays Finn. He's a train enthusiast who inherits a train depot in rural New Jersey after the death of his business partner and only friend. He moves there intent on living a life of quiet solitude. But the locals, including a hot dog salesman played by Bobby Cannavale, keep trying to get him to come out of his shell. Wow, we're neighbors. Nice. Listen, um, you want to go down to the mill and grab a beer later? No, thanks. Well, you don't drink? I do. Well, you just don't want to have a drink with me? I don't like bars very much. Oh. All right, well, uh, how about I go get a six and we can have it right here? 
No thanks. There are a lot of movies about the blossoming of unusual friendships. Usually they're cemented because of some extraordinary circumstances. A war, or an epic graduation night beer run, or a drug deal gone bad. In this movie, the characters just hang out. They read books next to each other, they drink beers, Finn shows them the finer points of train spotting. It's a great representation of how friendships actually happen. They get stronger inside quiet, relaxed moments when you're sharing yourself with another person. Time to the last train coat. Hour and 23 minutes ago. Seriously? Really boring. What if I hang out a while? I really like the scenes where Finn is explaining why he loves trains. They remind me of a time when my friend Colton spent several hours explaining to me the difference between Star Trek Voyager and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It didn't turn me into a fan of Star Trek, but at the end of it all, I knew him a little better. So I'm suggesting two things. One, see the station agent. Two, hang out. Grab an old friend you haven't seen in a while or that friend of a friend you want to get to know. Walk to that weird bar down the street that you keep meaning to go to. Ask them about their fantasy football league or their collection of Silver Age comics or, I don't know, why they prefer orange juice with pulp. You'll get to know them better and you won't even have to wait for a drug deal to go bad. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. That, I just got that. Our producer is Julia Smith, and our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Brian Bolt. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. If you have any thoughts about the show, for the love of God, don't tell me about them. Email jesse, jesse at MaximumFun.org. You should also post to our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. And hey, if you like the show, tell a friend about it. I'm Jordan Morris, and it's been a damn pleasure. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.